something to eat. Those of you, those of you who hadn't, looking forward to potluck, done great things, and he saved you from sin and judgment and hell. And it's prepared for us a kingdom where we get to enjoy his glory. The truth is, we couldn't tell all the good things, the great things that God has done. But we ought to try. We ought to try to give him praise, fitting his name. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for you have done exceedingly great things. You spoke and the world leapt into existence. Flowers dressed themselves in color. Stars suspended in the sky. Waves roll and the trees clap. The whole universe declares your glory. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And then you made us a little lower than the angels. And you bestowed upon us a, a dignity that um, we can't even describe. What is man that you're mindful of him? And yet you loved us before the worlds began. You loved us and you saved us by the sacrifice of your son. So through no effort of our own, when all our faults should have meant we were lost, you reclaimed us and cleansed us and renewed us and made us your children. Oh Lord, we have come together this morning to praise you for you have done exceedingly great things. Be glorified now in the preaching and the hearing of your word. As our brother said a moment ago, don't, don't, don't let us be those who repent and make no plan to change. Don't let us be those who hear your word and see our reflection in it and then turn away and forget what we saw. But address us personally by your word. Speak to us and change us and give us grace to go forth in obedience, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, if you need a Bible, if you would just raise your hands. There are a couple of um, brothers who are distributing Bibles this morning. We'd be happy to loan one to you. You'd be helped to have a Bible so you can follow us in God's Word. Um, we, we say, um, not with any sense of flattery to the preacher, but we say this is the most important part of our service because this is where God speaks. This is where we give attention to his word, and uh, so it would be good to have his word in your hands open to Ezra chapter 3. If you're using one of those Bibles that um, we just loaned you, you'll find that somewhere around page 390, uh, Ezra chapter 3. And let me say, if you don't have a Bible uh, and you've just borrowed one, well, you haven't borrowed it. It's now our gift to you. Uh, please take that Bible, write your name in it, keep it, read it through the week each day, and uh, come back week after week with us uh, to study it and to learn uh, about God's love and the great things he's done for you. Ezra chapter 3 is our text this morning. I have a good pastor friend who serves in Iraq. Pastors a church there. Went there about two years ago after having pioneered some Christian ministry in the Middle East. 9-11, the planes flew into the towers 
in New York on 9-12, he nailed a for sale sign in his front yard in Kentucky to go to the Middle East. He's been there those 12 years or so, and, and the Lord has now stirred his heart to go to, I said Iraq, he's in Syria. Go to Syria. The pastor of church there in Syria, just outside of the territory that ISIS has conquered. Iraq and Syria used to be home to millions of Christians. 2014, ISIS militants swept through towns near Mosul in Iraq. They took control and forced thousands of people to flee. Among the towns that they took control of was a town called, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this correctly, Qadr Kosh. That was Iraq's largest Christian city. The time had a population of about 50,000 people. And for more than two years, ISIS forces occupied that city and jihadists tried to erase every evidence of Christianity. They burned churches. They destroyed icons and statues. They tore down bell towers and crosses. And Carter Coast was retaken by Iraqi forces in 2016, but the city remains almost completely deserted. Little by little, some residents who were forced out when ISIS came in have been trickling back to the city. They're trying to recover what belongings remain. They're trying to assess the damage to property. And they're trying to reestablish worship. Only a handful have come back into the city thus far. Many are fearing their security and safety as battles in Mosul and other places continue. At one point, there were 120,000 Christian refugees who fled that area of the world into refugee camps. One priest there, the patriarch of the Chaldean church, said the situation for Christians is catastrophic. He says, if we don't rebuild, others will come to occupy our villages and towns. And he says, already they are putting pressure on Christians to prevent them from returning home. There's even began the practice in some cities where have had Christian mayors of deposing those Christian mayors and putting into office other uh, leaders there. And one mayor, Bassam Bello, who was taken out of office, said, we Christians are the meat in the sandwich between the Arabs and the Kurds. We're pressing in on us from every side. So our brothers and sisters are surrounded by rubble, surrounded by enemies. Their churches are bombed and burned. And so the question becomes, how do you restore worship when you've been utterly defeated and are surrounded by your enemies. When even the public privilege of worshiping God is something that you have lost in 
defeat and exile. How do you put that back? How do you get that back? How do you restore worship? Well, that's really the burden of Ezra chapter 3. As you'll recall, the Israelites have been sent into exile when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, conquered them. God had prophesied it in the prophets and said that they would be in exile for 70 years. But at the end of 70 years, he would regather them and bring them back into the land. As we saw in Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of King Cyrus, the king that also had been prophesied a hundred years before, Cyrus decreed that Israel should return from all of the Persian Empire and go, if they wish, to rebuild the, the house of the Lord and to reestablish worship there. Ezra chapters 1 and 2 uh, show us how God stirred the heart of Cyrus and stirred the heart of the leaders of Israel and stirred the hearts of almost 50,000 people to come back into the land. Now they're in the land, as you'll see in verse 1, for about seven months. Then you'll see in verse 8 that this timeline goes down to the second year after their return. So this is going to cover about 15 months of, of history, of time. And in that 15 months, what we're going to see is the restoration of Israel's worship. And we're going to learn some things about how we are to worship. Public worship returns when there's five things. Number one, spiritual leadership. We see that in verses 1 and 2 and 8 and 9. Spiritual leadership. Number two, Atonement for sin. Atonement for sin. You'll see that in verses 4 to 6. Number three, public worship returns when there is submission to the Bible. Submission to the Bible. Number four, public worship returns when there is honest motive. Honest motive, verse 3. And number five, public worship returns when there's honest emotional expression. Honest emotional expression, verses 10 to 13. Hear now God's word. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josedak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. 
But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites And heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. How do you restore public worship? To rebuild the people, you need to worship God the way God desires. Public worship returns when there's, number one, spiritual leadership. See there in verse 1. It tells us the exiles have been back in their homeland for seven months. It seems they've taken these seven months to return to their homes and towns and to get established in living arrangements. And indeed, it would take some time to resettle nearly 50,000 refugees at that point in history. But now, verse 1 says, they're gathered as one man to Jerusalem. The entire nation comes together for the assembly. And that's when Yeshua, the son of Josedach, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, arose to lead the people. Now, we first met them in chapter 1, or in Ezra 2, 1, excuse me. They're listed among the leaders of the exile. But here now, we're told who their fathers were. Shealtiel is listed in 1 Chronicles 3 as a descendant of King David. Shealtiel's father, Jeconiah, is called the captive in that genealogy, meaning he was in that generation that was taking exile into Babylon. So Zerubbabel is able to trace his ancestry up the royal line to King David. And in that way, Zerubbabel symbolizes not only political leadership in the time, but also spiritual leadership because the Messiah will come from the line of David. He's in the line of promise. 
Indeed, when we find Shealtiel and Zerubbabel listed in the family tree of Jesus, we we find them in both the genealogy of of Matthew and Luke. So here, behind this governor, looms the promise of God to send the Messiah. He's representing not just political leadership, but also spiritual leadership. Then there's Josadak, the father of Yeshua. He's mentioned five times in the Bible, four times here in Ezra and once in Nehemiah. So almost everything we know about him is right here in this two-volume set called Ezra-Nehemiah. He's from the priestly line of Israel. So Yeshua comes from the line of the priests who also had responsibility for Israel spiritually. And his name is interesting, isn't it? Yeshua is sometimes in the Old Testament translated Joshua, as in the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And it's interesting, after Nehemiah, you don't find this name in the Bible in the Old Testament anymore until you come to Jesus. For Yeshua and Joshua are are names that are pretty much synonymous with Jesus and have the same meaning. We will save. So here too in Yeshua, you're getting the the promise of a deliverer sort of embedded in his name. They are pictures of the true one to come, Jesus Christ. And the actions that they take in Zechariah or Ezra chapter 3 are really commercials for the kinds of things that the true Savior will do. Notice in verse 2, they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. And in verses 8 and 9, it says there, they made a beginning. By appointing Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. In other words, they are preparing the people to worship God. They are leading spiritually to focus the entire assembly on the God who's brought them back into the land. Listen, beloved, the rebuilding of God's people and the return of proper worship depends on having spiritual leadership. With Zerubbabel and Yeshua, God either chose them directly or put in place qualifications that the people could appoint them to lead them in the things of God. You see the qualifications alluded to in verse 8. When they select Levites, Levites can only, are the only ones who can serve in the temple worship. And they select Levites who are at least 20 years old. That's not because they're hating on young people. That's because that's what the scripture requires. God has given that qualification. But in the case of Zerubbabel, something unique is happening. God sends a prophet to make sure that Zerubbabel knows he has been divinely chosen to lead in his mission. So if you like, you can keep your finger there in Ezra or, and flip over to Haggai. Haggai is a prophet prophesying the same time. Haggai chapter 2, the last few verses of that, that little book, verses 20 to 23, are addressed to Zerubbabel. And here's what the prophet says. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to make the heavens and the earth shake. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Verse 23 On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, 
and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I know we got folks walking around today talking about they prophets. Talking about the Lord done told me to tell you. Don't believe that. Don't believe that. This is unique. This prophet really was sent by God to Zerubbabel to say, God has chosen you. You're going to be like a signet ring on his finger. And, and another prophet comes too. He sends a second prophet. So Zechariah chapter 4, also prophesying during this time, verses 6 and 7. Zechariah says, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone and shouts of grace, grace to it. It's a prophecy that not only says God has chosen Zerubbabel, but that God will give him strength to finish the temple. And that there will be great shouts of grace, grace to God when that work is done. Zerubbabel is unique here. Called by God, chosen by God for the work. So in our day, we want leaders who are called by God as well. And who also meet the qualifications that are written for us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Again, we, we, don't, we don't put any stock in somebody coming up and saying, you know, hey, look, somebody prophesied over me one day, I'm going to be a pastor and all that good stuff. Say, well, you need to find their church. But here, we want to see a sense of calling and qualification. That you have a burden to love people and shepherd people and teach them the word of God and some gifting for doing that. And the congregation recognizes in your life the kinds of qualifications God has put in his word in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But as we do that, church, we want to do that with a, a kind of spiritual alertness to the fact that when God begins to put worship in order, the first thing he do is calls for spiritually qualified leaders. So in Titus, for example, the book that we use is our church planting manual. The first thing that Paul says to Titus is the reason I left you in Crete was so that you would put things in order and appoint elders in every town. And then he gives the qualifications for elders. So before he gets to how do you instruct the older women and the older men and the younger men and the younger women, before he gets to anything else, he says, listen, things are out of order. And what you need there in order to properly worship God as his people is you need spiritually qualified leadership. The return of genuine worship comes with the giving of genuine leaders, spiritually minded leaders. And so church, pray for your leaders and pray for more leaders. Pray for those who have, yes, a sense of calling to do the work of God, but, but also the spiritual qualification to do it, and pray that as a congregation we would be able to discern that in whom the Lord provides. The second thing you need for worship to return is atonement for sin. Notice what Zerubbabel and Yeshua do. Verse 2, they built the altar of the Lord God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. Then in verses 3 to 6, we see the series of offerings and the feasts that are, that are commanded in the law of Moses that are now being reinstituted. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, a, a very complex feast really with lots of offerings, as it is written. 
and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. What's the key word in those verses? Offerings. In the Old Testament worship of Israel, offerings are at the center of worship. And these burnt offerings are being offered to God because of the people's sins. They're being offered for forgiveness of sins, for atonement to God, with God, to be made at one again with God. Their sins had separated them. Indeed, they had been sent into exile because of their sins against God. Now they're coming back into the land, and it's not as if you can just approach God any way you want to. It's not as though you can just come to God with no covering for your sin. It has to be atoned for. So the first thing they do in, in public worship is reinstitute the, the offerings that God had commanded in his word. So again, the key point is Israel could not approach God for worship until and unless their sin was covered by atoning sacrifices. Until their sins were covered, they were still in their sins. Until their sins were covered, they were still guilty before God. Until their sins were covered, their sins were angering God and bringing forth his judgment. So they needed a sacrifice that would make them at one with God again. And you see how all of this is pointing forward to the gospel, right? When the Lord Jesus came, the true Yeshua, the true Savior, he went to an altar shaped like a cross. And on the cross, Jesus offered himself to God the Father as the sacrifice to make atonement for your sins and mine. We, we cannot worship God in our sins either. We too must be covered by a sacrifice, the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now there's a big difference between the sacrifices in Ezra 3 and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The sacrifices in Ezra 3 were symbolic. They did not really remove sin. So Israel had to make those sacrifices daily and repeatedly. Just reading through verses 3 to 6, just see how many, how often the sacrifices were being made. Sacrifices on top of sacrifices. And their priests had to make sacrifices first for their sins and then the sins of the people, but not Jesus. Amen. Jesus made his sacrifice, the Bible tells us, once and for all, then he sat down. Amen. He did not have to make a sacrifice for his sins because he had none. He is the perfect high priest, and his sacrifice of himself really and truly does remove sin. Not symbolically, but actually. So now we come to God with a clean conscience and worship God freely and without fear because we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. But now, beloved, what I'm saying is you cannot come to God without Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, the most significant thing you must realize 
is that you need an atonement for your sin. And only Jesus provides it. You must repent. That is, turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus as the one who sacrificed to cover your sins, to atone for your sins, to pay the penalty for your sins so you could return to God through him. It's the only way to truly worship God in a way that he will accept is by accepting the sacrifice God made for you of his son trusting Jesus and following him as Lord. But now this sacrifice is not just pointing to the need for the removal of our sins. These sacrifices also indicate that we are meant to be holy before God. Exodus 19.6 says of Israel that they are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The sacrifices, yes, appease God's wrath and his anger against sin, but they are also symbolic of Israel belonging to him and needing to share his character. They were set apart for service to God and apart from the sinful world. And that same calling falls upon God's new covenant people. So Peter picks up this very idea when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's you, church. A holy people, a royal priesthood, called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, when you rebuild the people, you must not merely rebuild the buildings and get them in the land. You must rebuild their relationship with God and foster their holiness. We're called, beloved, to prize holiness and to seek it with all of our heart and faith and obedience to Christ. The the singular mark of God's people when they are rebuilt by the hand of God is holiness. I long for the rebuilding of my kinsmen according to the flesh. Our exile here is not over. But that rebuilding will not come finally and effectively by other sacrifices. It won't come by political sacrifice. It won't come by economic sacrifice. It won't come by cultural sacrifice. If any people are going to be restored, if any people are going to be remade, if any people are going to be rebuilt, it's going to be done because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those other things which we care about, the the restoration of family, the the restoration of economic fortune, the the restoration of safety in a community, the restoration of education, the restoration of dignity, the restoration of esteem, the restoration of a proper appraisal of your own culture, all of those other restorations have to grow out of being restored to a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All those other things have a sunset clause. When you die, they're done. And all those other things are are limited, infinitely limited, in their ability to achieve anything beyond this life. In fact, they cannot achieve anything beyond this life apart from Christ. 
So when Ezra and Nehemiah write their books, when Yeshua and uh, Zerubbabel lead the people spiritually, they lead them first back to God for a restoration of their relationship with God. And out of all of that comes the restoration of the nation. So we've got to be people who are, who are focused like a laser on making Jesus and his sacrifice known because that's where the power of rebuilding comes from. Everything else, beloved, are fig leaves and legalisms. The sacrifice that matters and on which we build is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. We, we care about rebuilding every aspect of the community. But we care especially about rebuilding the spiritual aspect. Think about it. There is no other agency on earth with this mission. If we abandon this mission, schools will go on educating, police departments will go on policing, uh, every other institution will go on doing what it does but nobody will carry the banner for Jesus. We carry this banner high and first, and from there, we work on caring about and engaging everything else. But we've been sitting here, I trust, to bet our lives on the gospel, to bet our lives on the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And everybody who loves that gospel and loves this community, whether it's your kinsman according to the flesh or not, we are engaged in this rebuilding work that repairs souls and repairs lives. True worship returns when there's atonement for sin. Number three, true worship returns when there's submission to the Bible. When there's submission to the Bible. Notice this in the text. At each step along the way, it is God's word that determines what and how the Israelite community does in worship. So you see there in verse 2, they built the altar of God. How? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Jump down to verse 4. They kept a feast of booths. How? As it is written. Still in verse 4, they offered the, burnt, the daily burnt offerings by number. How? According to the rule. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month. It's not clearly stated there, but they begin it on that day because that's when the Bible commands it. Verse 10, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel, according to the word. All these phrases indicate that Israel worshiped God by the book. And this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, ask yourself this question. Who or what should decide what happens in the public worship of God? Isn't it God? Isn't it God by his word? This is what theologians have historically called the regulative principle of worship. It's a fancy little phrase there. Simple definition of the regulative principle might be seen right there in verse 6. That phrase, according to the rule. Regulative comes from the Latin regula, meaning rule. It's the idea that the word of God regulates, it rules what happens in the worship of God. Everything the scripture commands and nothing the scripture forbids 
is to be offered to God in worship. That's how we're to gather publicly and how we are to express ourselves. That's how the lordship of Christ is demonstrated even as we worship, as we do what he commands and we don't do what he forbids. And the Bible gives us the basic elements of New Testament worship. We are to read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, We are to see the word in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are all commanded elements in the New Testament. They can take different forms so we can sing, for example, hymns or choruses. And we can offer different kinds of prayer. We had a prayer of confession and a pastoral prayer, for example. We can read the Bible. Just one individual reading for the whole, or we can read it responsively or in unison. Those are different forms, but the elements are the same. And beloved, this is why we don't do some things that you might have done in other churches. We don't practice liturgical dance, for example. The Bible doesn't require that in the New Testament. There were dancers in Israel's temple worship. But Christ has fulfilled everything that the temple worship is pointing to. He is the true temple. Now we have become temple in whom he lives. The the old elements and forms are completed in Christ. Or take another example. We don't do dramas or plays in public worship. I know some people are dramatic in worship, but we don't do that. Dramas and plays are fine things for Christians to do after church or some other day during the week. They are fine forms of entertainment. But God did not command that we do them when we worship him. We want our worship regulated by the word of God. That's because it's God who decides what pleases him in the worship of his people, not us. Now, this this is important. Let me give you three applications of this. Number one, the regulative worship keeps us from committing idolatry. It keeps us from offering strange fire to God by ensuring that we do the things that God said do and that please God. It keeps us from worshiping false gods, things that are not gods as if they are, or from worshiping the true God in a false way. Both are idolatry. And so as we are regulated by God's word, we get the real God in view and we serve him in a way that pleases him. Number two, the regular principle keeps us from splitting the church. It was easy to be out there as one man in verse one of Ezra three because they were all following the one book. That kept them from arguing about their preferences And I can't think of a place where individual preference is more tightly held to and more vocally expressed than when it comes to public worship. Everybody got an opinion. Everybody got a a favorite artist. Everybody got a song or something they like and one that they don't like. Praise God for a humble brother like Amos who listened to y'all talking about stuff like y'all ever led worship any time in your life, right? (laughs) Very gracious and humbly responds. A wonderful character in that young man. But if we hold strongly to our preferences 
and begin to argue about our preferences and try to force our preferences on each other when it comes to public worship. This is why churches split over the color of carpet or whether or not to have an organ and all kinds of other things that should never be the basis of unity. It's the regulative principle. All of us submitting ourselves not to our preferences, but to our God and what he requires in his word that keeps us unified rather than tearing each other apart over things that we desire, but God never, God never require. His third thing. The regulative principle helps us to go higher in the things of God. If God's ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts, if his ways and thoughts are not like ours, then the way to go higher in the things of God is not for us to go deeper in the things of man. The way to go higher in the things of God is for us to get out of ourselves and to get into the book, to get into the mind of God as it's revealed to us in the word. And to do the things he's called us to do, to think the things he's called us to think, to feel the things he's called us to feel. And as, as we do that, we get more of God. We discover more of his goodness, more of his grace, more of his glory. And it's as we do that, that we are filled with more of him. So if you, if you really want to sort of scale the heights in the things of God, dig deep into the truth of God. Dig deep into the Word of God. Let that govern and shape who you are as a Christian and how we worship Him as a church. A true public worship returns when there's submission to the Bible, atonement for sin, and spiritual leadership. And number four, worship returns when there is honest motive. When there is honest motive to worship. Look with me in verse 3. They set the altar in its place. Why? For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Remember the context. These people have been exiles, prisoners of war for 70 years. Most of them have never lived in Jerusalem. Most of them have never been to the home of their fathers. They're back in the land now for about seven months. But remember... They ain't got no military to fight for them. They ain't got no walls to protect the city. All they got is ain't gots. Everything is new to them, and they're trying to rebuild. They're surrounded by foreign and hostile people. It's like the, the bishop in Iraq said in the introduction, if we don't rebuild, others will come to occupy our villages and towns. We Christians are the meat in the sandwich between our enemies. That was the precise experience of Israel back in the land then. And do you know what they felt? Fear. And do you know what motivated their worship? Fear. A question. What, what do you think about them worshiping God out of fear? Do you think fear is an appropriate motivation for worship? Here's what I'm inclined to think. Anything that drives you to God is an appropriate thing to bring to worship of God. Fear, anxiety, worry, guilt, shame, 
any of those so-called negative emotions that, that drive you away from yourself, but drive you to God in genuine, honestly motivated worship, count it as good. Count it as good. I know, often we talk as if fear should not drive us to God. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Praise God. Amen. That's true. But you know what else God has not given us? A spirit of self-reliance, a spirit of religious fakery, a spirit of pretending before people. So we don't want to slip into a mindset where, where we only come to God when we got ourselves together. We don't want to slip into the habit of only coming to God when we feel good about ourselves and think, therefore, because we feel good about ourselves, God must feel good about us too. We, we, we don't want to think that God is pleased with us when we really don't need him. That ain't worship. I'm glad I can worship God when I'm scared. Israel is scared and they say so. And some of y'all are scared and you need to say so. Some of y'all are worried and anxious and you need to say so to God. God ain't scared because we scared. Listen, God ain't worried because we worry, and God ain't disappointed in you because you're human and you struggle with fear and worry and anxiety. This is why we also see in the Bible, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your worries, your cares, your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Oh man, these people are honestly motivated in their worship. And you know what, beloved? The, the cure for fear is worship. The cure for anxiety is worship. The cure for worry is worship. If, if you are genuine in your fear or insert another so-called negative emotion, but you genuinely bring it to God in worship, God has a way of causing you to forget your fear as you get caught up in him. See, fear says, take your eye off God and look at your situation. Worship says, take your eye off your situation and look at your God. Be reminded of how good he is. Be reminded of how great he is. Be reminded of how powerful he is. Be reminded of how loving and patient. Be reminded of how merciful this God is. Be reminded of the lengths he went through to save you and to make you his own. Be reminded that no weapon formed against you can prosper. If God is on your side, who can be against you? Be reminded that this God is with you even now. best thing the exiles can do is bring their fear to God and worship him anyhow. Get a glimpse of the king in his glory. For that glimpse changes things. Verse 3 is very good news because it means we ain't got to be faking like it's all right all the time. We can actually be motivated to worship by things that themselves are not great, but do bring us to the greatness of God. I mean, when we have a sincere motive in worship and, and when we believe that God has made atonement for our sin, then we can come to God as we are. You won't stay as you are, but you can come as you are. I once heard a preacher say, here's how you know whether or not you understand grace is whether or not you go to God when you sin. 
What did Adam and Eve do? They made fig leaves, didn't they? They tried to hide and to, 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 to run from God, to avoid God. But the person who's really been gripped by the grace of God, who understands the kindness and the mercy of God that, that isn't deserved but is given, whether it's sin or worry or fear, whether it's anger or doubt, whatever it is, if they have understood grace, the instinct will be to go to God, not run from God. And I want to suggest to you that these folks right now are living honestly before God and they have tasted the grace of God in bringing them back to the land and they come to God with an honest motive. That's what we need in our, week, in our worship, beloved. Our weakness may produce our worship if we give it to God on the altar. Israel brought their fear to the altar, and God altered their fear into worship. It's the final thing we need in a recovery of public worship. We need honest emotional expression. I need an amen right there. I know y'all ain't used to talking loud. That's why I'm glad Derek, a member of the church, he talked back to the preacher, helped the preacher. <laughs> we haven't really returned fully to the worship of God until we have returned with, with honest emotional expression. This is what we see in verses 10 to 13. The foundation is finally laid in verse 10. At that point, the public praise service begins. Notice there, the priests in their vestments, they came out with their robes, and, and, and this is a high ceremony, came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals. So they started a jazz band, and they're having a worship service to praise the Lord. According to the directions of David, king of Israel. Now, there's congregational or antiphonal singing there in verse 11. They, they are singing to one another. Then the shouting begins. It all goes Pentecostal. God, God has done something amazing. He promised to bring them back into the land after 70 years of exile, and here they are. And, and, and he promised to rebuild the temple and the city, and now the foundation is laid. He promised that they would be his people again, and indeed, he is gathering them from the four corners of the earth. And now they are gathered together to praise God for what he is doing, and the people felt something. They felt something. That's what I want you to see. They heard the truth of God, they saw the deliverance of God, and it moved them. They had an emotional reaction to God's goodness. When you come to praise God with the saints, don't, don't leave your emotions at home. Respond to God's truth and God's work with your whole self. Not just your head, but also your heart. Now the second thing I want you to see though, not everybody felt the same way at the same time. Notice now what verse 12 says. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. You know, old school can be like that. You know, the older we get, the better things were when we were young. No matter what's happening today, don't compare it all to then. 
hip-hop ain't hip-hop no more, you know, singers don't sing no more, and uh, people don't dress like they used to, and, you know, the older you get, the better things were, right? Don't know what's wrong with this generation. I think there's maybe a touch of that with these old saints, because these folks got to at least be like 75, 80, 90 years old, because they've been in exile 70 years, and they saw the temple before it was destroyed. They remember the grandeur. They remember the greatness of that former temple when it was standing fully erect in the sun and in the glory of God. And now they're coming back to a city that is nothing but rubble. And now they're looking at the the laying of the foundation. Now, don't think mason bricks. These are huge stones carved out of the side of the mountain. I'll never forget our trip to Israel and and seeing the temple and going beneath and looking at the foundation stones. Man, they're foundation stones that look like the size of that wall. And as big and as impressive and as massive as that was, the old folk are like, this ain't the temple. They, they, They are... They are stunned by the gap between the former glory and and their present grind. And they wept, y'all. Same worship service, same truth, the foundation is laid as God has promised. And they wept. Now the young bucks, who ain't never seen Jordan play, They get all happy with a LeBron. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) Verse 12 says, though many shouted, notice now, for joy. See, some folks were not making comparisons. They were just celebrating God's goodness, and so they shouted for joy. Now, both lamentation and celebration were going on at the same time. One shouted for joy, the other shouted for sadness. This means that in public worship of God's people, there ought to be and often will be a mix of emotional responses to the same truth and events. And this is the difference between emotion and emotionalism. So now emotionalism is about simply provoking an emotional response. Oftentimes, whether or not the truth is being told. And trying to get the very same response from everybody at the same time. You're trying to program people to respond in a particular emotional manner. And when that happens, let me tell you, almost always, they only go for joy. This is why Christians don't know how to lament. We don't have churches that make it okay for people to feel different ways at the same time as the same truth goes out. So now they are leading in worship, but they are not programming the people. And so the older folks are there weeping, and the other folks are there rejoicing. And the Bible says the sound goes up interchangeably, so much so that they could not tell who was doing what as they were shouting to God. When you sing in here, Sing with your heart. Your heart. Bring your honest motivation to God and give honest expression of your heart. If you sad, sing sad. If you glad, sing glad. If you confused, still sing anyway. Whatever it is you are feeling, bring it to God. Express it. It is part of your worship. I said out there this morning, Woke up this morning with a headache, came here before the service, it 
wasn't hurting like it was this morning, but you know how you still have that kind of fog going on? And I'm thinking, okay, how do I want to start when I get up this morning? Do I want to just confess that that's what I'm feeling and pray? And I'm looking around and other people are singing which seems like joy to me. It's like, no, they ain't feeling what I'm feeling. I'm going to praise God anyhow. And then God gives us this point. Come and bring your whole self. Now, if, you, if you're charismatic, raise both hands. If you reform charismatic, have a Bible in one hand. <laughs> if you Presbyterian, golf clap. You do you. And if you don't want to be with the charismatics and the Pentecostals, as they allow, leave them on the right side of church. You sit over there next week. You tired of ducking gestures, you know? <laughs> Give them a couple chairs. But there's a caution in all of this for us, isn't it? Don't think that people aren't worshiping God genuinely because they're not expressing the way you are. I don't think because every hand's not raised that folks are not communing with God. You see, some people ain't got no problem doing this. Praise the Lord. They're thinking about the Lord and they're praising Him. Other people, if their hands get this high, they become self-conscious and guess who they're not thinking about? Not thinking about God. You realize that putting your hands in your pocket might be the holiest gesture for some of your brothers and sisters. Because they're just closing themselves off with God and dealing with God with an honest heart. That's what we want, beloved. We we don't do shows here. We're not trying to be cool and slick. All of us, most of us ought to go ahead and just admit we done aged out of cool. We got too many bills with our names on to be cool. We now need to be responsible. (laughs) And God ain't playing. God ain't playing, church. Because this is the same God who will say, and I'm almost done, I'm sorry. This is the same God who, who will say to his people, this people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. And, and I won't speak for nobody else, but my guess is in a room this size, most of us have had the experience of being in something called a worship service that felt to us like praising God with our lips or felt to us like an emotional display. But at least our hearts weren't praising Him. So we're exiles, beloved. In Christ, we're sojourners. And we're doing ministry in, I want to suggest to you, as an exilic community. And we're trying to be rebuilt by God. We're trying to help others come discover how they can be rebuilt through faith in Christ. You, you know what we don't have time for? Either pretending or judging each other. What we do have time for is genuine worship. That occurs when we have spiritual leaders. It occurs when we 
make atonement for sin, submit to the Bible, have honest motivation, and honest emotional expression. So whether that shouts for joy or weeping in sackcloth, may the Lord give us grace to truly worship him. Let's pray together.